0: I'm Hemant Metta,
1: And I'm Jessica Blimke
0: And you're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com You can now listen to all of our episodes and see show notes at FriendlyAtheistPodcast.com
1: By the way, we now have a merchandise shop on the website So if you want your podcast swag, and you know you do, go to our website and click on the store tab
0: Dr. Lee Eric Schmidt is the Edward C. Mallinckrodt Distinguished University Professor in the Humanities at Washington University in St. Louis. He joined the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics in 2011. He previously taught at Harvard and Princeton. He has appeared in and on all kinds of media to talk about his work, and he's the author of several books. His latest, the reason we wanted to talk to him, is called Village Atheists, How America's Unbelievers Made Their Way in a Godly Nation. So, Lee, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Uh, It's great to be with you.
0: So let me just ask the, the most basic question here. One of the rumors we keep hearing online from a lot of religious right leaders is that we live in a Christian nation. So what do you have to say about that idea?
2: Well, my point to to that would be that it's been endlessly debated, uh, that the assumption somehow that it's a Christian nation has had its critics uh, from the get-go. And so rather than take that as some sort of given that this is, Clearly, a Christian nation in some kind of way. I mean, it's certainly, there's a Christian majority, but the notion that somehow officially a Christian nation is is an idea that's been debated uh, from the first generation um, after the revolution right through to the present. And so, what, what's important is to get inside that debate and to see that there have been secularist dissenters from that concept of a Christian America um, you know, from the beginning. So they so they can see that it's not something that one can just get away with pronouncing, but rather you have to enter into the discussions of that and see how, how the debate has been shaped over time.
1: I think one of the most compelling arguments I've heard against the fact that it's a Christian nation is that... The, the the framers of the Constitution, Declaration of Independence, didn't really mince words. And if they wanted it to be an explicitly Christian nation, I think they would have been more clear about they it. They would have of said like,
0: so in the Constitution Yeah, exactly.
1: Right,
2: right, right. So, so that's—yeah, and in fact, it, those within uh, evangelical Protestant communities who uh, want to advance the Christian nation perspective— have long seen this as actually kind of a defect in the founding documents, so much so that there have been organized efforts um, from the 1860s into the 1890s, for example, of really just making sure that stated explicitly, uh, you know, in the found, in the founding documents, that so we amend the Constitution in some way to make it clear that it's a Christian nation. So a, there is an acknowledgement on the part of Christian apologists that the documents didn't get this right. It wasn't explicit enough. It wasn't clear. So so there's that. And then there's also this sense um, on their part then that, well, if we don't have it in the documents, it's kind of um, just so much a part of the social fabric, Christianity, is so much a part of the social fabric that it's kind of operating it's functioning as, as as a Christian nation just because Christians have such a large presence um, in American social life so they kind of back it up in that kind of way to that kind of argument but there is there is an acknowledgement often uh, of, of your point Jessica that that it's just not there on paper um, and uh, that you know in in some sense there is this problem with this godless constitution that has to be confronted by by Christians who are trying to construct it, a uh, Christian
0: nation argument. We hear a lot of pushback against atheists in society that, you know, we need God more in society now than ever before. Was that always the case in our nation's history, or was it more secular, you know, for the first hundred years of its existence? Yeah,
2: that's a, that's a great question, a big question, and one I've, I've puzzled over for a long time. And what, what's the trajectory here? Um, was a nation more secular somehow its founding the the church is less powerful um, in that first 30 or 40 years than they would become after the, a series of evangelical awakenings and revivals um, certainly Christian, the Christian church has added a lot of members over the course of the 19th century and in some ways kept up that march of growth right through the 1950s so so you could see it as well there was a more secular secular period in which a figure like Thomas Jefferson could get elected. He was controversial for his religious opinions, but at least he could get elected, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and that it, over time, the, the predominance of, of Christians made it harder um, for atheists, infidels, and free thinkers to really have a public voice. So I think that it's, it's conceivable that there is something like that going on. On the other hand. Um, you know, in that, that founding period, too, in that first 30, 40, 50 years uh, of the Republic, uh, blasphemy laws were much more powerful. Uh, infidels found it harder, really, to speak their mind in public. There were, there were ways in which it seemed obvious that one shouldn't speak out, that you should sort of keep your irreligious your, your opinions to yourself. Um, so, you know, on the other side, there's a ways in which I, I think it's not so much that that there was a secular founding, and then this process of the nation becoming ever more Christian as the churches grew and grew in membership. From the other side, it looks like there has been ways in which a secularist vantage point um, has gained momentum with time, and that it really... Took off with these Supreme Court cases in the middle decades of the 20th century, where there was finally again, a kind of principle of neutrality that believers cannot be favored over non-believers in American public life. So that kind of looks like, well, the story should be told that the secularist principles are actually gaining momentum over time, and. And so we should tell the story that way. So what I end up with actually is just like we have to tell both stories simultaneously. We have to kind of move back and forth between them, a kind of this, and, and see this kind of ongoing tension between Christian understandings of the republic and the secularist understandings. And it is very hard to say the story's marching in one direction or another. It's rather the kind of back and forth, the engagement between. These camps that really has to be attended to.
1: How do you think being a Christian at the founding of the nation was different than being a Christian today?
2: Well, let's see. Um, that's it, ah, boy, that's a that's a that's a good question too. So I think you know, in the uh, at the end of the eighteenth century, there were. Uh, you know there was a a, a a large number of Protestants who still thought the churches should be established, that the government should officially favor um, Christianity in one way or another. And so now there were Christians, Baptists, many Baptists, for example, who were, Favorable toward the kind of Jeffersonian sense of separation. But there were many Christians that still had this sense, no, the government should support the churches either with taxes or they should uh, you know just kind of create some kind of establishment here. So I think in the early 21st century now, there aren't many American Christians who would come out and, and think that way. I mean, there aren't, they they may feel like they're embattled in some kind of way. They may think that they should have more cultural authority. But there but there aren't that many making a case for Christianity being the established religion of the nation. I think that the 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 principle of separation and the principle of religious freedom. Um, but those principles however debated and contested have nonetheless pretty much crowded out that way, that Earlier way of thinking of Christianity as, as um, the state religion.
1: I'm wondering if that sort of—I feel like now we have almost a test of Christianity. At debates, people are asked about how does your faith inform your opinion. Barack Obama is constantly being questioned on—is he really a Christian? They would they have had these sort of tests of some sort earlier in the country, or is this a relatively new um, thing we're seeing? Yeah.
2: Right. There were definitely those who wanted to impose a, a religious test, a kind of de facto religious test. So, for example, when Jefferson was running for president in the election of 1800, there were many, many Federalist clergy um, who thought that you know Jefferson just didn't pass mm-hmm. that test. I mean, he just couldn't have a free-thinking deist like him elected so they had a kind of sense that while it might it wasn't an official test it was a test that the uh, voters would enforce right and you know in many ways there's still that kind of test <laughs> right I mean that it, it's, it's hard I mean, it's not as strong as it once was it's certainly not as strong as it was during the Cold War in which you you know the last person anyone could imagine electing would be an atheist, right? I mean
0: Yeah, we're no longer still, at the bottom of the list. Uh-oh. I think we're like I think socialist is now at the very bottom of the yeah, list. Thanks
2: you know, Bernie. We're, we're and we're Muslim, second to last. Socialist, I mean they're, they're, you know, atheists are, are are have some company now. But atheists you <laughs> know, of course remain at or near the bottom in yeah. most of those polls. But but it isn't it 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 uh it has gotten some Somewhat better. I mean, uh, the latest polling is, is that just above 40%, I think, of Americans would see atheism as disqualifying someone from
0: holding public office. And still got think, a
1: majority. And,
0: yeah, more than 50%, <laughs> I think, for the first time, said they wouldn't care. They would vote for they an atheist if they right. supported. So,
2: so this increase in the, in the number of Americans who have no religious affiliation, who have no clear religious identity, which is up to about almost a quarter of the population and is very strong, obviously, in the millennial cohort, um, you know, that's changing that. I think that, that sense that there is... a a religious test being employed for public office is eroding ever so slowly, but it is eroding.
0: Uh, Your book focuses on four... Uh, free thinkers, whatever the label they used, but for free thinkers kind of who did very different things to kind of challenge the status quo. And I'm wondering if you could share like one short story of one of them and what we can learn. Because when I looked at the names of the people you were focusing as someone who, you know, talks about writes about atheism for a long time, they are not familiar names to me. And I'm wondering what we right. can learn from from some of those people you wrote about.
2: Yeah, I, I intentionally tried to get off the beaten path a little bit in, in, in looking for figures. I mean, Robert Ingersoll most everyone in the free thought community would know and would see as a hero and um, as kind of an embodiment of um, of a kind of golden age of, of American free thought. So they kind of wanted to get off um, off that that path and onto some others. And um, you know, one of my favorite stories is this cartoonist Watson Heston. Um, and he's not the most agreeable
0: person <laughs> in the world,
2: but he, he 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 becomes the kind of artist hero of secularists and atheists and free thinkers um, in in the late nineteenth century. He he publishes oh at least twelve hundred cartoons, um, mostly in this journal called The Truth Seeker. But all of them filled with this kind of anti-religious animus, his criticism of of Catholics and Protestants and um, his uh, critique of uh, church-state entanglements, his his anti-clericalism and and all of that. And I I found his images very compelling. Um, And I also thought his story was fascinating as this kind of – hard, scrapple figure in southwest Missouri, um, Carthage, Missouri, and how he makes a name for himself in the secularist world as an artist. Never makes any money much off of it, but becomes um, quite renowned as as this artist uh, of secularism.
1: And um,
2: so I was able to reconstruct his story, but also then reconstruct the, the kind of vision of secularism that his artwork entailed. And um, and so, I mean, and I saw one of the lessons that come out of that story when you really attend closely to visual satire and cartooning, of course, is this is one of the flashpoints that we all encounter in the, in the early 21st century is whether atheists and free thinkers should employ satire of, as a, as a major weapon against religious people. Um, and what are the implications of that? I mean, it's you know, it's a life and death question, um, obviously with the things like, um, Charlie Hebdo and, and, and so on. And so it, it seemed to me in, in looking at Heston and looking at his artwork carefully, I could get a kind of a background story around all of the attention we're paying to this question of, um, whether there's a kind of right to ridicule or whether religious ridicule has to be policed in some way because it's so incendiary, what's the balance between um, the feelings of religious people and this right to free expression. And so I thought the struggles over Heston's art, the struggle... um, and also just the the compelling qualities of being able to rebuild that story about him, but then also just getting inside the art the artwork and all of the controversies it generated at the time. I thought would give us a window onto the ways in which those issues are playing out in our old in our own world.
0: So he got um, a lot of pushback in his time, and we kind of see, like you're saying with Charlie Hebdo, but we see the same thing when you know South Park makes fun of religion mm-hmm. when comedians uh really tackle right. a particular faith too. So it seems like a lot of those themes are still carrying strong today.
2: Right, yeah. And there are, you know, South Park episodes about these cartoon wars um right. in the twenty first century. And it does seem it, it plays directly into these kind of cartoon wars that Hesbin was involved in, where um he's getting a lot of pushback, obviously in the Christian community with people who who think that his art should be suppressed. That the his main venue of publication should be shut down. The True Seeker, um, that it was just too blasphemous, too profane, too sacrilegious, um, and it should be shut down. The publication, his artwork, is banned in Canada. It's embargoed. as a danger to public order and um, moral decency. Um, you know, it's his one of his picture Brooks, is burned in the streets in Los Angeles. Um, so. Yeah, he gets a lot of pushback. There's some pushback, though, also among atheists and freethinkers who say, you know, this isn't really the best way to advance our cause. We're offending Christians too much. We should we should find a more civil way of engaging religious people. This kind of artwork is not making us any friends. It's it's um, it's not converting anybody to our cause. So let's not do that. Let's find a more civil way to engage. Um, that is very so much a
0: debate we still have today.
2: Yep. Right. So right. So I feel like it's uh, you know right the right yeah, at the heart of a lot of the debates we still see about in, in uh, the atheist community. Um, and uh, so yeah. So Hessen seemed like a good way of thinking about that. And the nice thing about it too is we often we in the in the twenty first century context we're often thinking about it in terms of atheism versus um, Islam. Um, uh, especially the depictions of the Prophet Muhammad, and in this context, it's really about Christian responses to visual, visual satire, and it's it's a helpful reminder in um, in our context of the incredible offense Christians have also taken to this kind of visual satire, um, and that that it's not the debate is not simply a debate between the West and Islam. Somehow, it's a debate also about um, enlightened um, satire and uh, Christianity.
1: So, um, going back to our founding fathers, um, you said Thomas Jefferson is pretty well known that he was a deist. Many of the founding fathers didn't necessarily believe in in the Christian God as as we see it now. Over history, is there anybody that we'd be surprised who is an atheist who maybe wasn't necessarily forth, forthcoming about it?
2: I was coming about, it. yeah, that's always the uh, the suspicion, right? That there are a lot more figures who are non-believers than are willing to admit it, right? Because all the pre- pressures to um, to not be candid about it, to kind of keep your cards close to your chest, mm-hmm. and um, not be open about your unbelief, because there are too many um, social penalties associated um, with uh, being openly um, atheistic or. Secularist, so um, that's so. If if it is about you know hiding what's <laughs> unbelief, I mean, those, a lot of the times that remains well hidden, um, and so you know it is in that first half century or so, it's only a, you know a pretty small handful of infidels and. Unbelievers who are kind of willing to be out there. There is there is that kind of sense that um, that there's this pressure, the expectation um, to keep quiet about it. That there's too much uh, respectability or or reputation at stake to be um, transparent about one's unbelief. You know, so what you get is certain notorious figures, like all the questions that are aimed at, at Jefferson, um, or, you know, a figure in, uh, in the 1820s and 1830s, this uh, infidel editor in Boston, Abner Nealon, who's tried for blasphemy and convicted of blasphemy. I mean, he's, he's openly, um, you know, very open ab- about his unbelief. But it tends to be those kind of figures, a few um, risk-taking journal editors, um but the you know, there's a few deist clubs and things like that, but it's um there aren't too many. I mean what I found, you know, for example in this question of whether like could an atheist be elected, could a free thinker be elected, was that ban kind of in place? where there more than you know, every once in a while you would come across a story, right, where oh, this atheist in Iowa is elected um at a city council level in 1856, everyone knows he's an atheist, but he has so much respect locally, um, you know, for his moral integrity and for his place in the community that they overlook that and they go ahead and elect him. So there are there are some some cases, but it isn't, um, you know, I don't I don't think that there are some famous folks out there who were atheists and that I've somehow found them out i don't have it's, i don't have those those kinds of stories not sure. people we would know like oh so guess what so that turns out to be an atheist <laughs> i mean there's always there's always um there's always a debate a lively debate that's what you find out is people want to claim famous people for your, their community so mm-hmm. abraham lincoln for example lots of lots of ink is built on both sides claiming well no lincoln was really a methodist no lincoln's really a free thinker and a non-believer and Or Frederick Douglass, the same thing with Frederick Douglass. There are freethinkers who think Frederick Douglass is a freethinker, a non-believer.
0: It's interesting you bring up the presidential race, too, because one of the things we saw in this year's campaign is that Bernie Sanders got to the level he got to. Uh And every time people asked him about his faith, yes, he's like Jewish is the label he uses— but every time he talks about it, it's a very secular form of it, mm. and it seemed like that was the least interesting thing about Bernie Sanders, and that may have helped him in a sense. Like, his atheism, or whatever, his secular Judaism, yeah. what have you, it didn't seem to hurt him. No one was attacking him DNC emails notwithstanding, uh. <laughs> no one seemed to be attacking right. him for that.
1: I wonder if that was partially because he also took on the label socialist, which tends <laughs> which, to is be worse. A, which is worse, which tends to be <laughs> yeah. worse. Which yeah. turns out to be
2: worse, right?
1: So he was just um, like, yeah, no, I, I'll roll with this. Uh, yeah, so I, I mean, it's the Bernie.
2: Bernie Sanders is an interesting case where um, where it didn't seem to hold him back, and it is. I mean, People did take that as a sign, see, look, the religious test is eroding, this kind of sense that you have to um, put on a kind of religious uh, air, affect uh, religious air, um, that that's just a necessary part of being in public life. But Bernie Sanders didn't do that, and Bernie Sanders was still very popular, Um yeah, and that you know, so in the in the hacked email, uh, the DNC email, where they're they're speculating well, maybe Bernie Sanders is not not merely that he has a Jewish heritage, but maybe he's actually an atheist. And if he's an atheist, then that really could ca- ca- count count both. Right. But it's it's not like it would go anywhere, and and it's not like anybody was going to use it against him. So mm-hmm. there was that, that was a pretty good sign of um, the, of the weakened power of that charge.
0: Yeah, the only Um, thing that worried me about that is I wonder if Bernie was a singular figure who... That wouldn't have hurt because of all the other things he said, What he, how he identified himself. Right. If you level that I mean, against there's... Hillary Clinton, that could go much further. But yeah. that's not the case. Right,
2: right. In fact, I mean, Trump did sort of insinuate at some point.
0: Right. I mean, and, we don't know her he faith. Well, we don't know anything
2: about <laughs> oh Hillary God. Clinton's religion. Yeah. She's been in public life. She might, and the insinuation was she might be a non-believer. Right. I mean, just like Barack Obama might be a Muslim. I mean, right. the ins- that's the kind of his insinuation. Now, of course, it had no legs to it, the insinuation, because it's obvious to everyone. Wait, wait, wait. Trump he's said got,
0: something that had no religious legs to
2: story, it. <laughs> but he insinuated it in front of evangelicals. <laughs> right. This evangelical group in New York. So so uh yeah, so that was there. But um it, it doesn't just doesn't have much credibility when it comes to Hillary Clinton. So I think you all did an interview with uh, Barney Frank a couple of years ago, which I thought was That you
0: know, wasn't us, where- but I we did I do know uh the openly secular campaign did do an interview with Barney Frank and asked him about his uh, he came out as, I'm openly secular, but also maintained his Judaism. And later on, he said, I don't use the word atheist.
2: Right. So he said that no politician should pick that fight, basically. I right. mean, why use the atheist word? Yeah, I don't want to pick that fight. Um, so, he said yeah, we, he would, you know, it would you know, come basically. across
0: as anti-Semitic to the people uh, he, because he yeah. identified as Jewish. He didn't want to portray himself as trying to run away from that label.
2: Uh, yeah no I think that I mean that's an interesting point and of course I mean Barney San, uh, uh Bernie Sanders has that too then I mean yeah. which is you know in that interesting way in which um secular Judaism affects the way we think about these labels too um and we don't have quite the same counterpart among among Christians that same way in which you can um move between secular and religious identities it's it's harder to do
0: let me ask you, uh, if you were to ask me today, you know, who are the most famous atheists in the country, I would probably point you to certain authors, scientists, or comedians. But if we go back 100 years or 200 years, what sorts of people are the big freethinkers of their day?
2: Right. Well, I um, I think that you would look at someone like Robert Ingersoll, who's this great order, who is genuinely popular um, you know, with audiences broadly. Um, it's clear that many Christians um, enjoyed listening to him. I mean, he had lectures, not just on you know, debunking uh, Christianity, he also had lectures on Shakespeare and things like that, but he, he had an, a, you know, an incredibly good sense of humor. He was incredibly eloquent, uh, and people just wanted to hear him. I mean, he was a phenomenon in that kind of way. So I think that the the famous atheists and free thinkers of his day they were often people on the lecture circuit that was the that was the medium it was people who could who could get up there on the platform and really entertain people and Ingersoll was was the best at it, but he had a lot of company, including one of these people I talked about Samuel Putnam, who was really good on the lecture circuit and um, you know they they probably had thirty forty of these lecturers um, in that era who were good at it, good at really holding a crowd's attention, um, good at really getting the free thought message out. So I think that was the chosen medium. That was the, the most um, powerful, far-ranging medium was this, this lecture circuit. So it was the, the most famous ones were usually lecturers, though um, you know, I would say somebody like a Watson Heston, as a, as a cartoonist had an incredible effect, I mean, he's sort of a, a comic, a comedian. Um, but just a great visual satirist. He had, um, he had real impact in that medium. Um, and then there were scientists um, that were, were important. Oftentimes they weren't closely aligned with organized free thought. Um, they were rather kind of authorities um, just beyond organized free thought, um, like Andrew Dixon White at Cornell, um or someone like that who, who really had a, a keen sense that religion and science were at war with one another. And so um, those kinds of intellectuals in the scientific community who were who pushed that kind of warfare argument between religion and science, they also had a lot of influence. But oftentimes they weren't um, you know, out there in the organized um, movement or an organized uh, cyclist movement, that wasn't true, but they were invoked. They were regularly invoked.
0: So when you hear oh, about God, all is. these uh, free thinkers who were out there, they were public about it. What comes to mind then when you hear people refer to, you know, today's atheists, some of them, as quote unquote the new atheists?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh... If you're a historian and you hear someone say, oh, these are the new atheists, you go, well, the new atheists sound quite a bit like the old atheists <laughs> and maybe they're not so new. Or, or you read all these accounts about the new atheism of the 1960s when, you know, uh, French existentialism was becoming popular or, or a kind of organized humanism was becoming popular or the Death of God movement was so popular, the cover of Time magazine and so on. And that was the new atheism of the 1960s. So you, you, you – Sort of bemused. If you're a swing, you're often bemused by the the uh, annou- announcements about the newness of things like that. But um, I mean, there are there are some differences when when it comes, you know, to to the to the new atheism. I mean, I think a lot of the new atheists, at least compared to the Cold War, they didn't have to sit around spending a lot of time saying, "I'm not a godless communist." I mean, you know, they had they had the luxury of of taking taking off after the Cold War was really winding down and and, and dissipating.
1: So they didn't have to
2: sit there and say, no, I'm not a godless communist um, in the way that um, any atheist um, in the post-World War II period through the 1980s, that just would have been one of the first things they would have had to explain is the difference between being an atheist and a communist or or something like that. So that's different. Um, And I think there's just a better demographic base um, for atheist expression in their 21st century than there had been, uh, than there has been before. I mean, this, this quarter of the American population that's willing to say they don't have a religious identity. They don't have a religious affiliation that just gives, uh, the new atheist, um, a base, a kind of readership, um, and um, and it just makes them a little more mainstream. I mean, they're communicating to a much bigger group of Americans who might well share um, their reservations about organized religion or or, um, or at least are indifferent about those claims. And so that, that changes it. I mean, that, you know, if in the 19th century, at the end of the 19th century, I think you could say 8 to 10% of Americans were probably in this kind of free thinking, irreligious camp. Um, but if you get up to 25%, uh, you know that makes a big difference. I mean that that's a significant minority at that point. Uh, so that I think has changed the the um, the reach of, of uh, the new atheists. Is they just have a they have a bigger uh, section of the population um, they can speak to and um, and and then help articulate their own uh, discontent about about religion
0: well we wanted to thank you so much for joining us uh dr lee schmidt his new book is called village atheists how america's unbelievers made their way in a godly nation thanks so much for joining us